Lying in bed on a lazy Paris morning, I wake to the comforting buzz and foop. It's a Chirac, spotting and sucking up a poodle turd on its search-and-destroy mission down Rue Claire. An activist mayor in Paris in the 1980s, Jacques Chirac created a small army of mobile pooper-scoopers. Known as Chiracs, these motorcycle vacuum cleaners doggedly patrol the streets of Paris. In this wealthy neighborhood, with more than its share of poodles, Chiracs are commonplace. Stepping to the fourth-floor window of my room at the Hotel Levesque, I see hungry seniors lining up for their still-warm baguettes and merchants setting out boxes of fragrant, ripe red strawberries. Then I see him, the soldier in green, methodically making his way down the street. He parks his motorcycle next to a dropping, covers it with the vacuum nozzle, and foop, the poop is gone. After an appendage soaps and rinses the spot, the Chirac, proud of a job well done, motors on in search of the next road hazard. From my window, I see the tip of the Eiffel Tower peeking over the grand city of Baron Haussmann. Haussmann was the 19th century architect who helped turn Paris into the elegant city it is today. Only the churches in the Eiffel Tower exceed the city center's six-story building code. Paris is packed with buildings, each topped with Lego-like chimneys and Kandinsky-esque antennae. Stately, black grillwork, frosted with big city dust, treats humble windows like royal balconies. Top stories squeeze maids, students, and winded backpackers under slanted ceilings with peak-aspire views under dormer windows. Paris is Europe's greatest city, its grand capital, and Parisian culture is resilient. Tourists bounce off it like bugs off a window. But with so much of Europe dolled up for tourism, a city that nearly ignores its tourists is refreshing. Paris offers an American the traveler's equivalent of finishing school. Below my window is Village Paris and the market street I call home, Rue Claire. This cobbled pedestrian street is lined with all the necessary shops, wine, cheese, chocolate, bread, as well as a bank and a post office. And the shops of this community are run by people who've found their niche, boys who grew up on quiche, girls who know a good wine. Connoisseurs of good living keep Rue Claire in business. If you want to learn the fine art of living, Parisian style, Rue Claire provides an excellent classroom. In the street below, Mimi, the receptionist and my friend for ten years of visits, pops out of the hotel with a tourist. As she points him in her idea of the right direction, her laughter echoes down the street. She is endlessly entertained by her inability to understand her English-speaking guests at the hotel. Proudly sporting its one star, this hotel, the Grand Hotel Levesque, pries apart a café and a cheese stall just wide enough to plant its front door on Rue Claire. Hotel Levesque calls itself grand in the sense of grand old days. As the singing maid's thin soprano wafts up from the no-view courtyard, I get ready to take my morning shower. For those of us who come from a country that starts and ends with squeaky hair, Europe has made great strides in plumbing. There was a time when slumber mills proudly advertised their sinks having hot and cold water in every room. I remember entire hotels that had no showers anywhere. For a decade of visits, Hotel Levesque was classic one star. A sink in the room, plastic cup, tiny soap, and maybe shampoo in an unrippable packet, and the shower down the hall. The shower was equipped with a frail piece of rubber shower hose. Water spun from its base and sputtered out its handheld nozzle. 
Never able to count on hot water, I'd start hot and scrub quickly, waiting for warm to become room temperature and then worse. Today, my Levesque shower is in my room, not down the hall, and the water bursts out stresslessly hot from a modern no-leak nozzle. Pondering the water babbling in the walls long after my shower is finished, I think of my Bulgarian friend, Svetislav, who used the sound of running water to mask intimate conversations in his dining room. Svetislav was a Francophile who never set foot in France. In the 1980s, Bulgarians were forbidden to travel west. But globetrotting via books, stories, and dreams, Svetislav was a frequent flyer. He knew Paris as if he had lived here. As we sat in his Plovdiv dining room with the faucet running, I'd bring my friend to Paris, spinning tales of the Latin Quarter, the Rue de Rivoli, the Louvre, and Notre Dame. In the 1990s, Fetty finally turned off the faucet and went to Paris. Spiraling down the hotel staircase to breakfast, I know exactly what to expect. Breakfast is half a baguette, flaky croissant, a basket of jellies, and two hot pitchers, one of milk and one of coffee. The coffee will be strong. It needs the milk. The wet pitchers will stick to the paper tablecloth. They invariably dribble during the pour. One French breakfast in a hotel cost about what two people would pay for eggs, toast, hash browns, and endless coffee in the United States. It's better not to compare. To supplement the breakfast, I make my ritual trip outside to the white-bonneted cheese man. Sankant Gram Emmental, s'il vous plaît, I say. Like any good merchant, he slices not 50 grams, but 80. C'est bon, he asked. Oui, c'est bon. When I step into the breakfast room with my discreet packet of cheese, Mimi kidnaps me into the kitchen. Whispering in French and gesturing as if her throat were being slit, she makes it clear that the new owner is firing her. She's in her 60s, but energetic. Thinner and in better shape than she was last year, she wears a bright scarf and a sporty haircut. Still, in two weeks, she's gone. At breakfast, a young woman introduces herself as Ariane and sits at my table. She's the daughter of the new owner of Hotel Levesque and a photographer here in Paris. She wears her hair cut short and dyed in a black cherry red, the same color as her lipstick. Except for the lipstick, she wears no makeup. She's confident and, though half my age, connects as an equal. She wants to talk about my TV series. Our conversation is interrupted by travelers with my book apologetically asking for itinerary advice. Ariane says, your series must be very popular. Mimi, whose cackle fills the breakfast room, was featured in my last series. Sounding like Cinderella's stepsister, Ariane continues, Mimi is like a star around here. It's too bad your father is firing her, I say. She speaks no English, says Ariane, ripping a flaky croissant in half. He had no other choice. Now tell me, how do you produce your TV shows? I have some time this afternoon. What about meeting me here after lunch? For the same reason I used to risk taking a stranger for a roommate in the dorms back at college, I agree. Rue Claire. Can a street be a sight? As I leave my hotel, I pass the cheese shop. A man, thrilled he's found his favorite goat cheese, tells me, View course. It can only be found here on Rue Claire. Rue Claire is so French, it makes me feel I must have been a poodle in a previous life. You could live well and never leave here. Flower shops add fragrance to the breeze, and every shop, except the health food store, is jammed. The crepe man makes crepes like he just invented them. A man with working-class hands cradles a bouquet and a baguette in his arms. Aproned, fruit stall attendants coax doll-like girls into trying their cherries. Even bums drink a better wine on Rue Claire.
Stepping past huge tables balanced high with colorful fruits and leafy vegetables, I spot my friend Maria Lise. She runs my favorite local restaurant. Each morning she picks up the ingredients for the day's menu here on Rue Claire. Oh, Rick, she says, noisily kissing the air an inch in front of each of my earlobes, the strawberries are beautiful today. She buries her nose, then mine, in a basket of the lush fruit. Ready to give a polite wow, I actually give an honest wow, having never quite enjoyed the smell of a strawberry so vividly. You must shop with your nose, she says. These strawberries are French. A beautiful smell, better than the Spanish strawberries. Reaching back for a less expensive Spanish strawberry, she holds the stem to my nose, and I smell nothing. Oh, and this basil, she says, moving on, it will be great on a salad. Maria Lise is short, barely reaching my shoulders, but she's a force in the market. With a dark dress, brightly colored sash, and beautiful long black hair, she power dresses to shop. Her lipstick is fresh as the basil and bright as the berries. I ask, may I join you? Yes, please, Rick, she answers. She knows I'm a TV dinner kind of guy. I suspect she welcomes this opportunity to give me a little cuisine culture. Pawing through bundles of tarragon as if the brown herbs were a bouquet, she says, pouting, no smell. If I want to make chicken tarragon, I cannot do this today. It seems that the herb delivery has not arrived. Ah, these asparagus are also not good. I must take them off the menu tonight. I flip through the tough leaves of an artichoke, saying, these are good with butter. Artichoke, we say this is the vegetable of the poor people. It takes a long time and much work to eat. Waving a gnarled white ball at me, she says, You know this? It looks like a brain, I say. No, Rick, this is the root of a celery. Stronger taste, we grate it for a salad. Delicio. It is not a season for melon. Ooh la la, look at the price, she says, pointing to the sign with price name and country of origin chalked onto it. What is that? About six dollars per kilo. You see, it came from Guadeloupe. There is an obligation to say where it comes from. Many people will buy only the French products. I try. French women, thick and crusty after a lifetime of baguette munching, debate the merits of the street's rival boulangeries. A young girl, who looks chic and just out of bed hair, walks quickly out the door of the bakery eating a pan au chocolat. Rue Claire has two boulangeries. Is one better, I ask? Oh, yes, this one is good. That one, she points down the way and shudders. It is horrible. I ask as we step in, can you taste the difference? Oh, absolutely. You see, there is the boulangerie problem. The man is either a good bread man or a good pastry man. The man down there, his heart is in the pastry. The bread suffers. Pointing to a fancy cake, Mariali says, the baker here is a good bread man, but he has a special pastry man. A bread man could never do work like this. When you do good bread, you have no time to do good pastry. A friend passes Marialis, greedily hurrying home with his tart. He giggles, pois et chocolat. Jean-Pierre loves his pear and chocolate tart, Marialis says. Then she walks me to the most tempting storefront on Rue Claire. Tart Julie's windows are filled with various pies. The shop's classy old storefront is a work of art that survives from the previous occupant. The inset stones and glass advertise horse meat. The sign still says, Boucherie Chevaline. The decorated front from the 1930s is signed by the artist. It would fit in a museum. But it belongs right here, and everybody knows this is a place for a fine tart, not horse meat. A long, narrow, canopied cheese table brings the fromagerie into the street. 
Maria Elise bounces her finger over a long line of cheeses. Wedges, cylinders, balls, and mini hockey pucks, all powdered white, gray, and burnt marshmallow. It's a festival of mold. Sounding blessed as can be, she says, so many different cheeses. This is goat and goat and goat and goat. All different kinds of goat cheese. Ooh, la, 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 la. Picking up a glob of cheese, misty with mold, she holds it close to her nose, takes an orgasmic breath, and exhales. Yes, it smells like the feet of angels. Just inside the door, she points a happy pinky at a crumpled wad of cheese the size of a pocket watch. Ah, Rocamadour. To make this tiny piece, you need half a liter of milk. The owner of the shop, seeing me peek past the heavy plastic curtain into the cold, tiled back room, proudly pulls back the drapes and invites me to see la moule. These are the huge rounds of cheese from which the hard cheeses are cut. Bending down to the second shelf on a big wooden rack, he hefts out a wheel the size of a truck tire. He declares 80 kilos, made with 1,000 liters of milk. I look at Maria Lise and say, that's about 250 gallons. Maria Lise translates his warning, don't eat the skin of these big ones, they roll them on the floor. Strolling with me past more cheeses, she continues, on smaller cheese, the brie, the camembert, this skin is part of the taste, it completes the package. I ask, do you assemble your cheese plates here? We, oui, she says, sorting through her options like a perky mother dressing her child. On a good cheese plate, you need a hard cheese like this Emmental, a flowery cheese, maybe brie or camembert, and a blue and a goat. Across the street, we pause at a table of duck, pigeons, quail, and rabbit. Maria Lee searches through the dead. With none of the tenderness shown in the cheese shop, she hoists a duck. Rubbing a thumb toughly on its rough and calloused feet, she says, So, you see this? This is very good. He lived on a farm, not an industrial kennel. This meat will be tasty on my menu tonight. Perhaps we will make the canard a l'orange. We cross the street. Greeting the mom and pop of the butcher shop, Maria Lee says, They buy the veal only on the foot. Walking in, she points to the red and gold medals that hang like a necklace across the ceiling. Hitting one with her umbrella, she says, each of these hung around the neck of a prize-winning little cow. When we see these, we know we get the top quality. The ruddy-faced butcher, wearing a tiny plaid beret and dressed in a white apron over a fine shirt and silk tie, is busy chopping. A battalion of meat hooks hang in orderly lines from the ceiling. The white walls bring out the red in the different cuts of meat. I say, he's the best-dressed butcher I've seen. Maria Lise translates and shares his response. His father dressed well. The customers expect this from him also. He changes his apron three times every day. An equally well-dressed man comes in to pick up a steak, and Maria Lee says he's from the British Embassy. Overhearing us, he tells us on his way out, the meat here is more expensive, but the quality is always first-rate. A bent little old lady follows him, clutching dinner wrapped in a waxy paper. Maria Lee says she gets a fine cut of meat with the same service as the man from the Embassy. The butcher's wife, who operates the cash register, tells Maria Elise that their 35th anniversary is this weekend. Maria Elise relates their story to me. Thirty-five years ago, the daughter of the Rue Claire fishman married the son of the Rue Claire butcher. She had shopped here with her mother. She saw the butcher's son chopping on that same table, Maria Elise says, pointing to a well-worn but finely carved old work table. She made an arrangement to see him, and, well, she left the fish shop. Today, she takes the money, and he chops the meat. And the father, 87 years old and still living upstairs, continues to come down, 
clean the knives and make sure his son maintains the shop's tradition of quality. As the postman flops the small pile of mail onto the counter, the butcher's wife says, but we have nobody to take the shop. Our children are not interested. I think we are the end of an age. By the way, I returned just last summer, and sadly the shop is indeed closed. The dessert of our walk is the Rucler Confiserie. Marie-Lise introduces me to Corinne, who recently took over the shop from a woman who kept this neighborhood in fine chocolates for 30 years. Have you kept the old customers satisfied, I ask? Of course, she says, giving a bag of pre-ordered chocolates to a pensioner. The chocolate companies want you to take the new products, but I keep the old traditional candies also. The old ladies, they want the same sweets they had 80 years ago. Corrine takes us behind her tiny public shop area into the room where fancy chocolates are stuffed. Marie-Alice explains, until the last generation, the shopkeeper would live and produce back here and sell in the front. Most of these shops were like that. After we leave the shop, Marie-Alice settles back down to her shopping. It's a Saturday, which means she'll need to stock her restaurant well for her many customers tonight. Before every purchase, she carefully assesses the quality of each item. Time doesn't seem to pass for her. I politely take her bags one by one, which only seem to encourage her to do more shopping. We make a couple of trips to her restaurant a few blocks away to drop off bags of food. Hungry after eyeing so much food, I rub my stomach and say, Je suis femme. Oh, Rick, she says with a smile, you just said that you are a woman. If you are hungry, say, Je femme. Let's find Philippe. Marie-Alice's husband is holding a table for us at the corner bistro. Our sidewalk perch is ideal for watching the constant flow of people. Across from the boulangerie, above the Boeuf Cheval Tripari awning, a golden horse head surveys the crowds. He knows that those toting day bags, fanny packs, and cameras eat the boeuf. Those with baguettes, dogs, and baby strollers eat the horse and tripe. And those with less than that wait for the end of the day when shops fill the Rue Claire trash cans with day-old food. Settling comfortably into her chair, Marie-Alice says, This is a bistro, a real bistro. This is hard to find. Traditionally, a bistro is small. It's a family thing. The children work here. There is no hurry, and the food, it is good. Now, many bistro are too big. In these new places, the waiters don't care. It's rush, rush, rush. She introduces me to our waiter, David. He hangs the day's chalkboard menu on the woven cane back of the extra chair at our table. David returns to help Philippe and Marie-Alice deal with the first topic, wine. The three of them discuss it, like a chess move, then like a scandal, and finally like the suddenly obvious answer to a complex riddle. The bottle arrives. Philippe, a rugged fifty with a classy suit jacket and an open collar, does the tasting formalities as if it really matters. He takes a slow sip, cocks his head, frozen in thought. Then he comes to life and says, Superbe, as only a Frenchman can. Well, I thought I heard Chardonnay. The label reads Bordeaux. What grape is this made from? Before I visit California, I would not understand this question, says Marielis. In Napa, I learned Americans consider wine by the name of the grape. A Chardonnay from Bordeaux and a Chardonnay from Burgundy is not the same at all. If you call this a Chardonnay and you don't like it, you don't know why. It is the sun and ground, not the grape. We are drinking Chardonnay grapes, yes, but this wine is a Bordeaux. This would confuse American buyers, I say. The waiter, David, says, and the French, we understand this. There is a small town in the south, Minerve. The classic Minerve wine is a blend of three grapes, 
it is very popular with the French. But the Americans buy wine by the name of the grape. One Minerve winemaker is making wines not blended, but labeled by the grape, Merlot, Cabernet, or Chardonnay. He sells the most. The other winemakers are fighting him. They say he has no pride in his region. Philip agrees, saying this is not right. You know your wine, I say. This is normal here, Philippe says. We know to choose the right wine. We discussed the wine at home. I learned wine from nine years old. Two Americans at the next table ask us how to order tap water. Philippe, with maximum flair in one hand in the air, says, You ask for the Chateau Chirac. Marie-Elise explains, That is not a fine wine. It is our fine water. When Chirac was mayor of Paris, he cleaned up our water. Now the water of Paris is very fine to drink. Chateau Chirac. Chatting about Rouclair's romantic ambiance, the Americans tell me they conceived their daughter here two years ago and named her Paris. Now they're back, for the first time away from their child, buying souvenirs with their baby's name on them. Paris is a city loved by its residents as much as by its visitors. But the character of the city is changing. Over the years, developers have reshaped Paris. Small neighborhood shops have been steamrollered by sprawling office parks and shopping centers. There is no other street like Rue Claire, says Marie-Alice with a sigh. Philippe asks David how Rue Claire survives. The waiter rolls up his sleeves, leans with both hands squarely on the back of the menu chair, and joins the conversation. Here, in the 7th District, we had 30 years with one mayor, Monsieur Dupont. This is a very rich district, very conservative. Monsieur Dupont stopped big investments in stores from coming in. Because of Monsieur Dupont, the seventh is a delight. The cheery ambience we picked up on our stroll down Rue Claire used to be commonplace in Paris. In the old days, a child could be worthless in school, but the shopkeepers knew he was a good kid. They'd find him a job. Neighborhoods were extended families. Today, with the death of most Parisian neighborhoods, cultural orphans abound. As I sip my Bordeaux, Mimi from Hotel Levesque walks by. Done with her shift and heading home, she sees me. She smiles and drags a finger down her cheek like a tear. I wave sadly, thinking she's a victim of these times. Then, as the parents of baby Paris get up to leave, waving my guidebook at me, I realize that, in a way, I fired Mimi. She's replaced by someone who can speak English and communicate with the tourists I send. I'll never see Mimi again after this trip. In the new lean and mean capitalism, private schools give the wealthy or gifted the skills necessary to succeed. Ariane will manage fine. Mimi, she'll fade away. Today's economy has no heart, says Philippe. Marie-Alice says Rue Claire will survive. The 70s and 80s were the time of the supermarchés. Now we like our little shops again. No, says Philippe, in the last year only, 1,200 cafés in Paris closed. And in the countryside, traditional ways are also dying. On TV, we see the SOS employment announcements. When a small village in the middle of nowhere is about to die, its city hall advertises for a new owner to keep the vital shop or hotel in business. But everybody comes to Paris. 20% of all the French are now here in Paris. This is a problem. We are losing the art of French living. Then I ask, is that why French people drink so much wine? Philippe, flagging David back to the discussion, says, No, no. In fact, the French, we are drinking less alcohol. We sell no more aperitifs in our restaurant. Even the French wine consumption is down. This is a government fight against drunk driving. 
David agrees. Traditionally, the French don't eat without wine. We drink wine with lunch and wine with dinner. In Russia, people drink to escape. In America, it's for the stress. Here in France, it is the culture. Maybe traditionally, says Philippe. But today, life in France is faster also. There's more stress, and many people have an alcohol problem. To deal with this, there is a new non-alcoholic trick, Prozac. Antidepressants are very popular in France now. 50 million French consume as much Prozac as 260 million Americans. David says, my mother now takes this Prozac. Marie-Alice says, and now we don't have drunk drivers running off the road, we have sleeping drivers running off the road. As David dashes off to kiss the cheeks of a couple ready to leave, I comment on how confident, content, and self-assured this young man is, with customers twice his age and twice his economic standing. Europeans charm me with their ability to be proud of their position in life. Waiters and maids are professionals. An American might be apologetic about such job, considering it a stepping stone to something of higher standing, even if it weren't. For the European, this is their place. I ask, can this attitude survive? Ever confident, Marie-Alice responds, sure it can. If half your waking hours are spent at your job and you don't like your work, your life is a failure. Europe is not interested in what people do or how much money they make. It is taboo to discuss money. We are interested in a person's art and intellectual value. A young man like David, he knows it is unrealistic to have a different life. He accepts this. Like the Rue Claire shoemaker, he is respected not for the number of zeros in his paycheck, but for his work. He holds, uh, how you say, Philippe helps out, venerable, yes, Marie-Alice continues, a venerable position in our community. That's French, I conclude. No, says Marie-Alice, looking out over Rue Claire, it is more than French. That is European. Going underground. With her trendy black sweater stretching to the tops of her fingers, Ariane looks like an artist waiting to be discovered. She leans against the hotel as if her father owns it. I love this street, I tell her. There couldn't be a better urban home. Big city options with village ambiance. Ariane agrees. I could get a job tomorrow in New York, but I'd rather be unemployed in Paris. Shall we walk and talk, I ask? Sure, she says. Where would you like to go? The Louvre. On every visit to Paris, I have a date with Mona. Now that a plan is set, Ariane's eyes get even more intense, exuding a no-apologies directness. The small talk is over. Tell me about your show, she says. As we walk, I tell Ariane that it takes three of us, me, a camera person, and a director, six days in Europe to shoot a 30-minute show. It's a small crew and fast work. And that's just the start. Distilling the six hours of rough footage we bring home into a finished program is where most of the expense is. It takes about half a million dollars to make a 13-show season. She's not impressed, but does ask, who pays? I explain that the public television network loans us half of it. Oregon Public Broadcasting, the patron station, kicks in the use of their studios. We borrow money we expect to get when the shows are sold to cable after their stint on public television, and we work for deferred wages. Is there any profit, she asks. We sell videos with a plug at the end of each show, I explain. Once the network loan is paid off, we pay our wages. Sales after that are split three ways, among our production company, the network, and Oregon Public Broadcasting. That's the profit. Why no underwriting? We'd love some underwriting. 
but underwriting usually comes with strings attached. Visa almost gave us some, but at the last moment they said, and of course you'll have to feature only restaurants and hotels that accept our credit cards and not American Express. And, she asks. I said, the deal died. Ariane looks at me like the child of a father who worked too hard and had no time for his family. So, do you enjoy it? If we were properly funded, I would, I tell her. But the financial pressure puts a strain on everyone involved. We survived producing 52 shows out of the love of making good TV and teaching good travel. We round the corner and I point to the white outline of a dachshund stenciled onto the sidewalk with an arrow to the gutter. Cute, says Arion, but the dogs don't get it. Thank God for Chirac. Hopscotching past a couple of turds, we leave behind the daylight and descend into Europe's greatest subway system. As we walk nearly a subterranean block, we pass some 50 posters advertising the new luxury Peugeot. I ask Ariane about the repetition. She says, advertisers buy metro wall space by the meter and roll out their posters. You can psychoanalyze a neighborhood by its advertising. The 7th district is old and rich. The ads are expensive and promote luxury items. Paris is not divided right bank and left bank, but west, more sophisticated, and east, lowbrow. On the train, a tourist grabs my arm and says, Hey, you're the travel guy. K-U-H-T, right? He sits down and invites himself into our conversation. Do they censor you, he asks. Well, not really, I answer, but uh, we censor ourselves. It's necessary to be sure we get good airplay. Programmers are responsive to viewer complaints, and we don't want to needlessly offend any potential sponsors. Sounding like a detective, he says, I thought so. You're more fun, less careful in your books. Why not on TV? Telling him again that self-censorship is a necessary evil reminds me of scriptwriting frustrations. Like a kid squirming in a dentist's chair, I endure the pain of careful reviewers scouring each script for problem-causing lines. They pull out playfulness like crooked teeth. For example, my description of a portrait bust of the pharaoh Akhenaten with Mick Jagger lips was next. To drive home the point that English is Europe's second language, I scripted, When a Greek meets a Norwegian hiking in the Alps, they communicate in English. What Greek speaks Norwegian? Concerned that this might offend the seven Greeks who do speak Norwegian, the punchline was cut. Illustrating the changes you'll find as you near the Mediterranean by saying, People, like the towels and breakfasts, get smaller as you travel south, that was also considered potentially offensive. Groping for a way to adequately describe Norwegian nature, I wrote, This cruise takes Norway's fjord beauty and lays it spread eagle on a scenic platter. Much too suggestive. And a sentence I wanted to use that attempted to bring to life a vivid Viking exhibit, you can almost hear the screams and smell the armpits of those redheads on the rampage, was simply too gross. In retrospect, I'm grateful that wiser television producers saved me from myself. Thankfully, writing allows for a little more recklessness. As we change trains, Ariane rolls her imaginary camera from an escalator while I'm running up the steps. Great dolly, she says at the top of the escalator. So smooth, I agree. But for the first series, my microphone was hardwired to the camera and I couldn't do this fun stuff and talk at the same time. Finally, with a radio mic, I felt like a dog off his leash and we could do more interesting stand-ups. We glide along 300 meters of moving sidewalk. The Paris Metro is an inside world in constant motion. There's no sky, just a steady river of people. With an imaginary zoom lens, Ariane compresses the long, crowded tunnel into a mass of commuters, a sea of bobbing heads. Riding the Metro makes me feel like a blood cell in an organism called Earth. 
flowing from one artery to the next, we pass musicians pulling Brahms out of plugged-in cellos and talk-a-lot beggars with stringy hair pasted to their faces. Ariane asks, was the first series your first time in front of a camera? Yes, I said, and I had some problems. I had this goony eye thing. When I was done saying my lines to the camera, I'd look away as if I had glass eyes. Just blink after your last word, says Ariane. I know that now, but it took me 13 shows to figure it out. I also had a habit of jumping into conversations before a sentence was finished and repeating lines people said to me. Ariane shakes her head, stepping on lines. That makes editing the footage much more difficult. This young Parisian woman has a way of making me feel defensive. I assure her that now, after 52 shows, we've really got our act together. At first I thought that learning my lines was nothing more than memorizing words. Now I internalize the meaning of my lines, a huge difference. In early shows, we recorded the voice track in a makeshift sound studio in cheap hotel rooms. I'd stand sweating in a closet, blankets draped everywhere to deaden the acoustics. Recording each show was a four-hour ordeal. My addiction was terrible. Now I know it's get, not get. Any, not any. Going to, not gonna. Now we record the voiceovers in a Seattle studio, and I can do a show in a third the time with better quality. I peer down the metro tunnel and see a subterranean bubble shining in the distance, a hamlet of life with more people waiting for the same train. Nearly 300 such bubbles, some small, some virtual cities, fill that parallel world under the streets of the City of Light. The platform fills with commuters. When our train finally arrives, three older women shove their way off. Battling her way on board, Ariane looks back at them. As the door slams, she hollers, Vous êtes si français. Comfortably seated, Ariane says, French people are never happy. It's part of our mentality, self-critical. We insult each other by saying, You're so French. I thought the rude French person went out with de Gaulle, I remark. Oh la, the rudeness survives, she counters. Everybody knows the Parisians are famous to be really, really mean. We're not only rude to the tourist, we're rude to each other. The young generation, maybe not so much. We have traveled and see how it is necessary to be more polite. But the older people have never traveled. This contributes to the problem. Our train races, whistling, wheezing, and screeching around the corners to the next intersection. Gazing out the window into the darkness, I accidentally make eye contact with the reflection of the old woman across from me. She doesn't look mean, only tired. By her side is a woman who must dress from the same mildewy closet. A long lifetime in Paris has made them weary. Much of their bodies has settled into their ankles. With nylon socks not quite reaching their modest knees, they jiggle in unison to the rhythm of the metro rails. We step off the metro and our train vanishes, leaving only a big city wind. When on my own, I never leave the metro without reviewing the Plan du Cotier, the neighborhood map posted on the metro wall. Giddy as an economy traveler who's been bumped up to business class and is surveying the in-flight menu, I scan the map for unexpected sightseeing treats. But Parisians navigate their metro with the emotions of robots. Ariane knows exactly which exit to take. I follow. For Ariane, the metro is a tool. For me, it's a magic carpet. I don't just leave the metro. Riding the escalator in my best Louis XIV pose, I ascend. Outside is vividly outside when coming from the inside of all insides. Trees shimmer, backlit. The sun hits me like a phone call from an old friend. Greatness is a matter of contrast. A good shower is great after a cold one. A noble city is royal after Belgrade. 
a cozy street is a slow-motion reunion of lovers after negotiating the Arc de Triomphe, and no museum is as great as the Louvre. A Royal Perspective Ariane and I joined the line, winding like a tail from the kite-like pyramid marking the entrance to Europe's top art gallery. If art nourishes the soul, the Louvre is a smorgasbord. Once inside, the vast glass pyramid serves as a skylight as mobs of hungry tourists choose their cultural bibs. Some take tours, others follow guidebooks. Joining those who slurp their art, we simply follow the signs to Mona Lisa. Of the thousands of pieces in this world's biggest museum, only Mona Lisa is signposted from the turnstile. Tourists slalom under the disappointed gaze of classical gods and past the forgiving eyes of Christian saints. Oblivious to Michelangelo's slaves, yawning and stretching and waking up to the modern world, tourists trudge on to Mona. Arion notes, Mona Lisa is the only piece of art in the Louvre that you can actually hear. She's right. Like a waterfall, its rushing commotion can be heard from two rooms away. Barbarians belly up to the protective rail not to see Mona, but to photograph her. They're as illiterate as serfs when it comes to the no flashes sign. Hungrily squinting through cameras, they eye the painting. From behind her drool and bulletproof window, she smirks at the crowd. I stand amid more tiptoes than anywhere in Paris. It's a Kodak pig pile. Some pull several cameras from their bags. Japanese don't look at Mona, but they pose with her. From the rear of the crowd, video cameras held high like makeshift periscopes capture the scene. Others, without cameras, come to really see the masterpiece. Solemnly, they wait their turn for a center spot. Like a lady on the prow of a ship, each stands strong, weathering the painting's stormy waves of beauty. Stepping out of the commotion, I join Ariane on the sidelines, where she's looking not at the art, but at the chaos it causes. I say, people from all cultures look at Mona as if waiting for an explanation. Like the tourists, and you look at us French, she says. Titian's ignored portrait of Francois Premier, sporting his good-natured grin, watches the scene from three paintings over. He and Mona go way back. Francois brought Leonardo to France, and Leonardo brought Mona. When Leonardo died, Mona moved in with Francois. Mona and Francois seem forever still in their frames. But Veronese's giant wedding feast of Cana canvas, which fills the next wall with its frolicking cast of thousands, feels like a party aching to happen. Perhaps after hours, when moonlight pours through the skylight, Venetian nudes boogie, Veronese's string quartet comes to life, and Mona winks. Ariane and I leave the Louvre. Pausing in its courtyard, we look toward the Arc de Triomphe. What a great photograph this makes, Ariane says. Paris was lucky to have kings and presidents who loved their city. Do you know the Perspective Royale? From the Louvre, she says, looking in a straight line, you can see the obelisk in the Place de la Concorde, the Arc de Triomphe, and far in the distance, the Grand Arch of the Defense. This one view tells the history of Paris century by century. 17th century, the Louvre, the Palace of France's Kings, she says. I jump in with 18th century, the Place de la Concorde, where Louis XVI lost his head at the guillotine and the old regime died with him. Graciously accepting my contribution, she continues, 19th century, the Arc de Triomphe, celebrating Napoleon and his victories. This triumph was not just for Napoleon, but for France. Jumping in for my turn, I say, 20th century, the Grand Arch of the Defense, celebrating, I pause, searching for the right word, 
the world. The Grand Arch, built in 1989 on the 200th anniversary of the French Revolution, is a megastructure that acknowledges a new age rising above nations. As if to bury the notion of six-story limits, this arch is surrounded by stiletto skyscrapers. Housing 30,000 office workers, it celebrates not the victories of a nation's armies, but the triumph of international commerce. In the wake of this triumph, nationalism seems irrelevant, and Paris looks quaint. Ariane waves down a taxi, and we ride up the Champs-Élysées toward Europe's wildest traffic circle. Our taxi waits to plunge into the Grand Circle, where a dozen boulevards converge on the Arc de Triomphe. Like referees at Gladiator Camp, traffic cops stationed at each entrance in this ten-lane circus let in bursts of eager cars. While marble Lady Liberties scramble up Napoleon's arch, heroically thrusting their swords and shrieking at the traffic, all of Paris seems drawn into this whirlpool. Stirred by this call to arms, otherwise sedate tour bus drivers become daredevils. Egged on by applause from their suddenly bloodthirsty tour groups, they cut off six lanes at once as they charge to the inner lane. It's a game of fender-bender chicken. This circle is the great equalizer. Tiny Duchevaux with their sardine-lid rooftops cranked open bring lumbering buses to a sudden cussing halt. Ariane says, in Paris, a good driver gets only scratches, not dents. Groping for the lost end of my seatbelt, I say, there must be an accident every few minutes here. When there is, says Arianne, each driver is considered equally at fault. This is the only place where the accidents are not judged. No matter what the circumstances, insurance companies split the cost 50-50. As we sit momentarily stalled on the inside lane, I have a chance to see the tomb of the unknown soldier. Marked by a quiet flame under the arch, it sits nearly unnoticed in the eye of this storm. As if to make up for an excess of manners and the rest of its culture, Parisian traffic is anarchy. Throughout Paris, green lines, a quaint attempt to establish bike lanes, blink from under the wheels of the traffic. In the 1980s, my friend Steve Smith, who co-authored my France guidebook, and I shared ownership of a VW van in Europe. One day Steve told me that when Parisians bump and grind in traffic, they generally don't even bother to stop. An hour later, a woman grazed our van. She gave me a not-quite-apologetic, we'll-never-be-able-to-establish-who's-at-fault look, and drove on. Vinnie Van Gogh, as we called our van, was close to both Steve and me. Steve shipped Vinnie from Portland to Europe, packed with his family's worldly belongings when they moved to France. My wife and I conceived our firstborn under its pop-top. Vinnie served valiantly as a production wagon as we filmed our first 13 public television shows. My publisher, Ken Luboff, who, along with John Muir, published the cultish How to Keep Your Volkswagen Alive guidebook, The Idiot's Manual to Car Maintenance, vacationed with Vinnie. With Vinny, I survived sudden Norwegian blizzards and corrupt Neapolitan cops. Once, while sleeping in Vinny on a dark street in Paris, I was jolted awake by voices of a gang of late-night troublemakers who spent several minutes playing with the pronunciation of Washington, 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 on the license plate. Along with its abundance of traffic cops, Paris seems to keep a bus barn filled with riot police. It's rare that some kind of manifestation is not disrupting traffic somewhere in town. It was a manifestation, not traffic or thugs, that spilled the end of our handy Vanagon. Vinny was firebombed during a student riot, sacrificed for the cause of smaller classrooms. Steve, who was living in Paris at the time, sent me photographs of the blackened corpse of our van, which, along with about 50 other cars, burned in the riot. Vinny Van Gogh.
Ariane and I survived our afternoon together without a hint of a manifestation. No 50-50 accidents and no plans to make TV together. She gets out at her studio and I keep the cab for a ride to Montmartre. Moonrise over Paris. By sundown, I'm wiping my feet on the steps of a sacre coeur. This neo-Byzantine church crowns Paris's only hill. For years, I'd finished tours here on Montmartre, overlooking Paris. While the group enjoyed views of the City of Light, I'd grab a prayerful moment in the sacre coeur church. Marveling at the pitfalls we avoided, the lessons we learned, and the friends we made, I'd thank God for safe and happy travels. Now I step inside without a group and warm my face over a tray of candles. Taking a seat in a pew, I remember how alone I was feeling when Paris gave me the most powerful religious experience of my life. It was early in my tour guiding days. The tour was over. Seeing the last tourist off, I was overdue for some freedom. When I returned to my hotel room, a strange depression overcame me. For three weeks I had been Mr. Travel, showing off Europe to the constant applause of shutter releases. Suddenly, no one in Paris even knew I was alive. Venturing outside the security of friends and the responsibility for followers, I stepped into solitude. The long-awaited tomorrow was here. I was alone and free, and expecting to be happy. But my small hotel room became tiny. A huge weight pushed me to the bed as my illusion of strength and power tumbled down on me like a Greek temple in an earthquake. God was telling me I couldn't be strong alone. Good travel is more than just counting blessings. It's understanding them. You appreciate the vintner and the land in the bouquet of a fine wine. You let a favorite artist share new beauties in times and places you've never been. You eat better ice cream than you thought was possible. And you warm your spirit in the glow of a European who's found his niche in life. Good travel makes God obvious to me. Stepping back outside the church, I join the gangs sitting on the steps. From these steps, lovers of Paris watch as the streetlights of each arrondissement pop on in a nightly electronic roll call, one district at a time. I want to sit alone, but street vendors take turns with me, hawking their plastic gimmicks. First, a soft-spoken young man flies his plastic wind-up bird. Next, an older guy yanks on a fluorescent yo-yo. Finally, two boys bounce cigar-shaped balloons the size of small dirigibles between me and my view. Each wears a look of sincere curiosity, wondering why I won't buy their treasures. Then, a cruel local schoolgirl, more clever than I am, yells, Police! And the street merchants scatter. Those with retail displays laid out on a ground cloth pull a cord, scrunching everything into a sack, and vanish. Suddenly, only the romantics remain, loitering on the steps of Montmartre. Simon and Garfunkel wannabes sing energetically out of tune. At the base of this Mount of Martyrs, the red sign of a cafeteria seems to introduce the hedonistic red-light district by blinking, self-serve. I walk downhill, grab a quick dinner at the self-service restaurant, and then step into Paris's red-light district, Pigalle. Six blocks of tour buses wait for their groups to finish their can-can evening. In 25 years of Paris, I've never come close to buying a ticket to the can-can. But a red-light district hits me like a surprise stoplight. Even if I were a customer, I'd be too nervous to get my money's worth. But looking is free and reasonably safe. Prostitutes decorate the bars they call their offices. I float by, swimming close, flirting, but never touching. I can't walk past Hotel de Douai without poking in. Back in the 1970s, this was my Parisian hotel of choice. It's just off Place Blanche. 
The White Place got its name from its location at the base of the hill where the original plaster of Paris was quarried. Sloppily, it was loaded into wagons on Place Blanche. Hotel Didouet was a carnival of character. The doorman, Monsieur Mion, spoke no English, but he tried. When I'd say thank you, he'd reply, thank you, you, with an enthusiasm that made it mean you're welcome. When customers arrived and said, here's my luggage, he'd say, mine's over there. Thank you, you. His boss was Jane Danick, a fat-ankled woman from Brittany. As if running a loving orphanage, she mothered her guests. Jane was old enough to remember the days when a child would lose its French citizenship if given a Celtic name. In spite of her acceptable name, Jane had a secessionist fire that gave her a street evangelist zeal. By day, she'd orient tourists with an entertaining lecture while scrawling instructions upside down on the free city map. By night, she was a fountain of red wine, breathing noisily, the hairs on her face rustling, and spouting stories about how Brittany was sick and tired of being ruled by Paris. A visit with Jane turned over cultural rocks the French tourist board never set out. I loved Jane's hotel, with its toilets, tiny detours off the spiral staircases between floors, strung together by a single pipe from a time when plumbing was humble. The WC lights went on only when the bathroom door was bolted. Hotel de Douai's rooms came with outright angles. I remember finishing a tour here with a particularly fun and hearty group. Gary was a favorite traveler from those days when I packed Valium to comb my customers after room assignments. He took me into his room and, as if defeated, admitted that he couldn't handle a room in which nothing was square. Knowing a good man cracking can set off an entire tour group, I found him a room with 90-degree corners. Slowly, the Pigalle neighborhood spread. Reports came to me of high-heeled women checking into Hotel de Douai for less than a night. While for me the charm of Hotel de Douai could survive a few prostitutes, I had to drop it from my tours. A couple years later, it was sold, gutted, and went three stars. Dropping by today, I ask about Jane and Monsieur Mion, and the man at the desk says, Who? When out late in Paris, I like to finish my day with a walk along the Seine. Floodlit Cathedral, Inky River, Full Moon, Lonely Key, Caryatid Lovers, A Walk with Friends. Just enough red wine and then some. For years, I've used the Seine Riverbank Walk under a floodlit Notre Dame as a finale for tours I've led. We saunter under trees, backlit by the moon, and 2,000 years of history. With buttresses fingering its walls like a blind person seeing a close friend's face, the church glows. It's the way your last night in Paris should be. Once, a few years ago, I was enjoying a last night in Paris with a particularly enthusiastic group of travelers. We had just broken out of a group hug and were still sharing stories about our trip. Suddenly, night became day, as a barge at full throttle filled with flash-toting, coke-guzzling tourists sprayed both banks of the river with searchlights. I lost it. It was the only time I've ever mooned anyone, and I wish it came with a bullet. Looking through my legs at 400 tourists, I was blinded by the sweep of floodlights and the climax of flashes. If only I could circle the tiny white round thing in their scrapbooks. I'd autograph it. The Grand Organ at the Cathedral of San Sulpice. It's the Sunday morning of my departure day. On the way to the airport, I have time for Mass in a church with perhaps Europe's finest pipe organ. A cool wind blows down an empty Rue Claire. The cheese man sleeps, so I have only strawberry jam for my breakfast baguette. Grabbing my bag, I kiss the air on either side of Mimi's big happy face. On such a lovely morning, all troubles are forgotten. She yells, Bon chance! 
and cackles au revoir as the door to Hotel Avec swings shut. San Sulpice has only 20 or 30 worshippers this morning. I grab a pew. Going to church anywhere south of the Rhine generally means going to Mass. Catholics claim that since the Mass is the same everywhere, there's no language barrier. Maybe it's just the Lutheran in me, but I miss the Alpha, the Omega, and, except for communion, nearly everything in between. When I make it to church in Europe, surrounded by huge buildings, statues of weary saints, and tiny congregations, it's the music that sends me. The spiritual sails of San Sulpice have been filled for two centuries by its 6,600 pipe organ. Organists from around the world come to Paris just to hear this organ. As the first Mass of the morning finishes, half the crowd files quietly out, but the rest, about a dozen, remain seated as the organist runs a musical victory lap. I happen to sit next to Locrum, a young organist from Switzerland. He never comes to Paris without visiting San Sulpice. When the organ stops, he whispers, Follow me, you see nothing like this in America. I follow Locrum to the back of the church, where the group gathers. A small church mouse of a man opens a tiny unmarked door, and we scamper like sixteenth notes up the spiral staircase into the organ loft of our wildest fantasy. Organists are intimate with an obscure world. They have household words I've never encountered. They speak of masters from two hundred years ago as if they just heard them in concert. Locrum stops me at a yellowed document. Dragging his fingers down the glass frame, he says, The Twelve Sensulpice Organists. Most of them are famous in the evolution of pipe organ music. With no break, they have made wonderful music in this church for over 200 years. Like presidents or kings, the lineage is charted on the wall. Charles Marie Vidor played from 1870 to 1933. Marcel Dupre from 1934 to 1971. And now Daniel Roth. Dupre started a tradition at San Sulpice, Locrum says. Now people who love the organ are welcome here in the loft every Sunday. The dozen gather around Daniel Roth. He knows he sits on a bench that organists around the world dream of warming. Maintaining Dupre's tradition of loft hospitality, Roth is friendly in four languages. History is thumbtacked all around. Dusty charts of the pipes, master organ builders, busts of previous organists, and a photo of Albert Schweitzer with Dupre. And overseeing all of this is a bust of the god of organists, Johann Sebastian Bach. Locrum pulls me behind the organ into a dark room filled with what looks like 18th century stairmasters. Before electricity, it took five men to power these bellows, and these powered the organ. Suddenly, the music begins. Back at the organ, a commotion of music lovers crowds around the tower of keyboards in a forest of pipes. In the middle of it all, under a dangling heat lamp, sits Daniel Roth. A slight, unassuming man who looks like an organist, he pushes back his flowing hair with graceful fingers. Then, with a boyish enthusiasm, he sinks his fingers into the organ. With an assistant on either side of the long bench and arms and legs stretched out like an angry cat, Roth plays all five keyboards. Supremely confident, he ignores the offbeat flashes of his adoring fellow organ lovers, follows the progress of the mass via a tiny mirror, and makes glorious music. The keyboards are stacked tall, surrounded by 110 stops, little wooden knobs that turn the pipes on and off, and together create a multitude of tonal packages. In hurried discussion, his assistants push and pull the stops after each musical phrase. They act quickly, but as carefully as though God were listening. Locrum props a chair against the front wall of the organ, allowing me a commanding perch to oversee the musical action. 
On a well-worn wooden keyboard of foot pedals spreading below the bench, Monsieur Roth's feet march with his fingers. A groupie flips over his cassette to catch the music as Roth cranes his neck to find the priest in his mirror. I peer down at the busy keyboards and Roth's marching feet. Then, turning around, I peek through the pipes and down on the tiny congregation. Just as priests celebrate Mass in a church, whether there are worshippers present or not, this organ must make music. I marvel at how the high culture of Europe persists. I'm thankful to experience it.